Okay, sorry about that. <clears throat> um, hopefully you found your new sheets that are on each table that you can add to your binder. If uh, you need more at your table, just let me know. And I also have these sheets that I've been talking about the last few weeks that I don't think all of you have. On this side, it talks about the angel of the Lord. On the back side, it gives titles of Christ. If you need one of these, raise your hand and we'll add it to your, your binder. You guys got one? Good. There you go, sir. There you go, Laura. Good morning. I have one. Okay. Everybody, everybody else got one? What is that? It's uh, angel of the Lord on one side. Okay. Good, good, good. Very well. Well, I shall pray, and then we will uh, get into page 18, looking at Hebrews 1, I think is where we'll be this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us and the opportunity we have to be together to look into your word. We know that this is how we grow and learn and uh, draw closer to you, is by coming together to study what you have said and to uh, take hold by faith of what you've said. Help us today to have a more magnificent view of Jesus Christ, that we would understand more about his nature and how that affects our salvation. Help us to grab hold to what you have said Today, I'm going to ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did we finish the section on Colossians 1 last week? Can someone remind me? Yes. yes. Okay. But we did not start Hebrews 1. Okay, very good. Well, let's all turn to Hebrews chapter 1 together, and we will uh, look at what Hebrews 1 has to say about the deity of Christ. Remember, this study, uh, this particular lesson within this study, is about looking at the deity of Christ, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. And we've seen quite a bit from those first two passages, John 1 and Colossians 1. Some amazing, comprehensive, massive statements regarding the person of Jesus Christ, who is God himself. And we'll see that continued on here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So would someone uh, read those verses for us? Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Who's got that? Thank you. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and many portions, portions and many weeds, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much, become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. All righty. In those four verses, there's just a lot to see, isn't there? And now I've highlighted these terms on your handout on page 18, and we'll just walk through those. It starts in the first two verses, that after God spoke in the Old Testament in various ways, you see that in verse 1, it says, in the New American Standard, in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, so putting, a, putting our minds toward a uh, timeline fulfillment, Okay, not that all things have been fulfilled, but... Things have started to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. And so the author of Hebrews here is pointing our minds 
toward Jesus Christ from the very beginning of the letter. And it says, Jesus Christ is the one, verse 2, whom he appointed. Now, appointed uh, has in view here a designation that Christ was designated in eternity past to be heir of all things. Okay? He wasn't appointed on the fly. It wasn't like Jesus was born into the world and Surprise, Jesus is awesome, therefore he's just going to be appointed to be uh, the heir of all things. No, this is all the eternal plan of God. In the eternal plan of God, Jesus Christ has been appointed, designated to inherit all things. We see this kind of language also in 1 Corinthians 15. You can make a note of that. It's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting at about verse 20 to 30, right there in that range, where... Paul is talking about the future kingdom of Jesus Christ where all things will be put into subjection to Jesus Christ. When Jesus reigns as king, all things, and when I say all things, it means all. Okay? All means all, and that's all all means. Okay, uh, All things will be in subjection to Jesus as he reigns as king. And it says here, like we've seen in John 1 and Colossians 1, that all things were made through him, through whom also he made the world, the text says. The Father, Son, and Spirit created all things through the Son for the, for the Son to be praised to the glory of the Father. That's the formulation we see as this is explained throughout the Bible. Now, isn't this amazing? These three main passages that we have that point to the deity of Christ. John 1, Colossians 1. Hebrews 1. Every one of them talks about Jesus as creator. That Jesus is the creator. Now you tell me the significance of that when we talk about the person of Jesus. If we're trying to determine the person of Jesus Christ, is he God or is he not God? What is so significant about him being called creator? Well, he has to be God because only God can create something out of God. Yes, very good. I mean, this... I'll just keep bringing this up probably throughout the whole class because it's just so fundamental, fundamental and critical. You have creator, and you have on the other side of a line, on the other side of an infinite chasm, you have creature. Can creature ever cross the chasm and become creator? No. Can creator ever cross the chasm and become creature? No. <laughs> okay. All right. That's where our lesson's going today as we transition to the next page. Well, we know for certain, right, this can't happen. And that's what's significant about these three passages. That's all we'll consider for this moment. Is that a creature is never going to graduate to the point of becoming the creator. The Bible is quite clear that when we talk about creator, there is but one. Creator is always God. Each of these three passages, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, point to Jesus Christ being the creator of all. It also gives us this interesting language in verse 2, uh, or verse 3 rather. New American Standard says exact representation. Yours might say the exact imprint of his nature. That means there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the persons, we're talking father and son here, regarding the divine nature. So the idea that's uh, here, you've got the Greek word uh, character, 
is the word that's used for representation or imprint or image. When someone would like make a stamp with their signet ring in those days, you have the wax, hot wax, and then the, the ring goes in and you've got an imprint that's left. Well, what this is saying is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his person, has the exact imprint or the exact representation of the nature of God himself, and I think in particular, God the Father. They share the same nature. All right. Now, this isn't saying that the, the whole process that we have to go through to create a, an imprint or representation happened with them. So it's not saying that God stamped his ring and then there's Jesus. It's saying that the result is you have a one-to-one correspondence between the nature of the Father and the nature of the Son. You don't have any language here or anywhere else that Jesus was created. What you have is an example, an illustration that's being used that the nature of the Son and the nature of the Father has an exact correspondence. And no matter what word you have for imprint or representation or whatever it is, you should have that word exact in there, that this is an exact correspondence, which is obviously significant. And it's the correspondence with nature, the nature of the person. The Father's nature, of course, is deity. He's divine. And the Son is divine. Both are creator God. There is but one God. They are two distinct persons, yet they share in the exact nature. Okay, so this is a Trinitarian verse, too, that you have Father and Son sharing the exact same nature as it pertains to deity. Thoughts or questions at this point through Colossians or uh, Hebrews 1? Okay. Doing all right. Well, two more terms I want to point out or phrases. Continuing on in verse 3, not only is Jesus Christ the exact representation of the nature of God, he upholds all things by the word of his power. To uphold is basically saying what Colossians 1 was saying. That in him all things hold together. Jesus holds the universe together. He leads it to the end that God has determined. Uh, Jesus is the one who sustains all things. He is actively upholding all things in creation. So when you're thinking about the present ministries of Jesus, and there are several, we'll get to more through this study, but one of them is that he's upholding all things in creation. That might not be something that you think about very often. But in Jesus, all things hold together, and he is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. It's his own power that is upholding all things in the universe. And it goes on to say in verse 4 that he's inherited a more excellent name than the angels. And of course, these two concepts are tied together. There is no angel that's upholding all things in creation. There's no angel that has the exact representation of the nature of God. There's no angel that has been appointed in the same sense that Jesus has been appointed. There's no angel that is creator. And so, of course, he has inherited a greater name than they. He has a special designation on the throne after his atoning work was completed. I made up a word here, but it's basically the idea of uh, Hebrews. At the end of verse 4, He's inherited a more excellent name than they. 
Jesus' name is the excellentest name you could ever have. Okay? <laughs> the most excellent name that there is, the name of Jesus, because of all of these things that Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 has said. Okay? Now, any thoughts or questions on Hebrews 1 and how that shows the deity of Jesus Christ? Joe. Jesus is the most excellent one. Yes. But so is God. Yep. Jesus is God, right. Yeah. Well, um, as it pertains to you and your salvation, you, of course, know that there is no other name given under heaven by which you can be saved, except for the name of Jesus, right? Uh, That's actually an interesting study through the book of Acts, is looking at how the apostles preach about the name of Jesus. It comes up a lot, uh, where his name comes up over and over and over again, where they say uh, they, they were baptized in his name. They, were, uh, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And so as it pertains to the church, the name of Jesus is the highest name. And as it pertains to our salvation, you can't have a more excellent name than King Jesus, right? Okay, good. Other thoughts or questions on Hebrews 1? Okay, very well. Well, um, let me end with a quote from Gregory of Nyssa. I'm sure you were just reading some of his works over the weekend. (laughs) He says, The heir of all things, the maker of the ages, he who shines with the Father's glory and expresses in himself the Father's person, has all things that the Father himself has and is the Passover, or possessor, (laughs) possessor, of all his power, not that the right is transferred from the Father to the Son, but that it at once simultaneously remains in the Father and resides in the Son, for he who is in the Father is manifestly in the Father with all his might, and he who has the Father in himself includes all the power and might of the Father. They just they thought pretty deeply about these things back then, didn't they? And you can too. You can too. So you see he lived a long, long time ago, died in 395. But uh, the church was, was having to think through these things as the word of God was given to the church and it began to be copied, circulated, and they were formulating doctrine. They were making doctrinal statements like we have doctrinal statements today. They had to articulate in their language of their day what they thought about Jesus, among other things. And this is where Gregory of Nyssa landed in explaining this, and of course he wasn't alone in that, but that's his own particular uh, articulation. Clearly the apostles understood Jesus to be the eternal, sovereign, awesome Son of God who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And you can see that especially in the book of Revelation, can't you? You read through the book of Revelation and see how Jesus is treated in the book of Revelation, how he's worshipped just from beginning to end in that book by angels, by redeemed man. He's the eternal, sovereign, awesome Son of God who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. You cannot say that about a creature, can you? But you can say that about the Creator God. Well, before we get to page 19, I'll see you one more time if there are any thoughts or questions. And I'm going to turn my back to open that, so just shout it out if you've got a thought to share.
Go ahead. Uh, in verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. Yes. Mormons do preach that Satan and Jesus are brothers. Right. Which that is definitely not a true. Correct. Jesus created Satan. So that's, yeah, that is a, a major, major difference. And one that doesn't get highlighted within the Mormon church, obviously, <laughs> for obvious reasons, right? <clears throat> Not exactly a way to win people to your religion. And you say, hey, Jesus and Satan are, are, bro are brothers. Not just buddies, but they're brothers. Sheesh. Yeah, that is, that's crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, over and over again, the testimony, especially in Colossians 1, um, if you guys have your notes open, uh, let's see. In Colossians 1, at the top of verse 18, where we talked about all things were created through him and for him, perhaps you remember that in Colossians 1, it says all things visible and invisible. Now again, I, I highlighted this last week. This is a really sweeping statement. So we're talking stuff that you can see, stuff you can't see. Does that include Satan, or does Satan somehow fall outside of those categories? Yeah, you may not be able to see them, but Jesus created all invisible things too, didn't he? And so Jesus is not the brother of Satan. He's the creator of Satan. Very, very big difference. Satan is a creature. Jesus is creator. Wasn't Satan all angel? Yes, yep. Correct. He wanted to be God, and that's why he fell. I will make myself like the Most High. So, yeah, that's it. All right. Other thoughts or questions to share? Okay. Very good. Well, now we're beginning page 19. Lesson titled, Truly, Truly. Now, when I say uh, truly, truly in quotes like that, where does your mind go? Truly, truly. Yeah, yeah. You've heard Jesus say that a bunch of times in the Gospels. Truly, truly, I say to you. Well, I'm actually using the phrase in a different way. Uh, he is truly man and truly God. I should say God first. He's truly God and truly man. That puts that in the right order. Okay, that's what I want you to think about when you see that phrase for this class. What was Jesus doing before he took on flesh? Let's have our minds go back there. We talked about this um, on page 17, perhaps. Yeah, the top of page 17. Again... To be a broken record on purpose, Jesus is creator. We know that he functioned uniquely as God in creation, but he was also a messenger, wasn't he? Through the Old Testament, he was the angel of the Lord who appeared to God's people. He was a messenger. There were Christophanies, appearances of Jesus before the incarnation. And so he was doing things. He wasn't just twiddling his thumbs, waiting until he was going to be born, but he was busy and upholding all things in the universe by his power, that's pretty significant. So Jesus was up to stuff before he took on flesh. But now here's the, the question for this lesson. If that's who he is, eternally God, who's eternally uh, occupied with being God and all that comes with that, how could the infinite God become finite flesh like us? How could that happen? Because we, we have that in Scripture, it's quite plain. I mean, John 1 is just as clear as can be. The Word, who is God, became flesh. 
So there's, there's our statement of fact. That happened. How? God can do anything. That's a great answer. Okay. But when we think about, you've got the divine nature of the person of the Son of God. And that nature is eternal. No beginning, no end. Eternally existing as God. And then you have this human nature that had a beginning. How do those two get along and mesh and jive with one another? Are they standing on other sides of the room? Are they holding hands? Do they join together and become one new thing? Can we even figure it out? Does the Bible even go there? (laughs) Well, let me give you uh, some options here. You see at the top of uh, your sheet on page 19, I'm showing my hand by saying these are heretical options. Okay, Here's some heretical options. Option one. Christ has one new nature, and that's, that corresponds with the first one that's listed for you there. That starts with an E. That's pronounced Eutychianism. Okay, so you can jot this down now if you'd like. This option says Christ has one new nature. The human and the divine blend together. So, it's uh, kind of like, I'll just use an E for Eutychianism. Okay, say you've got a... A pitcher of water. Okay. You got a container, some sort of vessel of water. And then you drop some drops of paint in there. And you know what that does to the water, right? It all kind of blends together and it becomes a new substance and it changes color. And it affects the whole thing. And so Eutychianism is basically saying, like you can even see it here, the red with the blue is starting to become purple there. Eutychianism is basically teaching you've got the one person of Jesus Christ and the divine and the human come together and blend and he's got one nature and it's a mix. It's like he's a new species, a species unique as this one natured person that has a nature blended together of divine and human. Okay, We'll revisit that. Option two starts with an A, Apollinarianism. It's the view that Christ acquired a human body, but did not acquire a human mind or a human spirit. So Apollinarianism comes together and says, well, Jesus is God and man. That's a good start, right? But it denies that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Now, I don't think, going back to the original believers of this, they would say he's 50% God and 50% man. But there are two parts that come together to make the one new nature. So like the first option, this option says Christ has one nature. But instead of things blending together, they're separate, but they're not 100% each. Okay, they are, it's, it's part humanity that mixes, or not mixes, that joins with part divinity. And where they diminish that is they say, well, Jesus didn't have a human mind or a human spirit. He maintained the divine mind, but he never had a human mind. Because in that view, that's just, you can't have that. He can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. And so they reduce the humanity. He wasn't 100% man. He was mostly man. And so the two parts come together, not to blend, but parts come together to make one. And then there's a third option, Nestorianism, that teaches... That Jesus is one person, kind of. (laughs) He has 
within his person, two persons, the divine and the human. So, on the one hand, it's good, where it says, well, look, okay, you've got these separate natures, and they're 100%. Great. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. We agree. They don't blend. They don't become one new thing. Great, we agree. But then they say that instead of being simultaneous, Jesus would sometimes in his life be acting as God and other times be acting as human. It was never simultaneous, but he almost like alternated, took turns, sometimes divine, sometimes human, never simultaneous, which is actually quite similar to the uh, Trinitarian heresy of modalism. If you remember that uh, way back Sheesh, I don't even know where that, where that would be. It was way back there. We talked about um, the view called modalism. That was uh, page 10. Go, go to page 10. We'll look at that real quick. It is a view of the Trinity that says, Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully, truly God. Great, that's good. But they are not... Existing simultaneously as three persons, but that God takes turns. You see the the forms of water illustration there on page 10? The heresy name is modalism. It teaches that God is singular, but he is not simultaneously plural. So sometimes God is Father, sometimes God is Son, sometimes God is Spirit. Well, that's just not what the New Testament presents. You take the baptism of Jesus, for example, you have all three persons there simultaneously. Okay? And so God is simultaneously three persons. Nestorianism, when it comes to the person of Christ, just takes that same idea and applies it to Jesus and says he takes turns. Sometimes Jesus is divine, sometimes he's human. Well, that's just not what the Bible presents to us, is it? The Bible presents to us Jesus simultaneously divine and human. So we have these three options. And like I said, I believe all three of those are anti-biblical. They go against what we have in the, uh, in the scripture. And so we have to now build up a proper view. If we're saying each one of these has its weakness, well, then how do we define this rightly? Okay. How are you handling this this morning? Should I have handed out peppermints this morning? Would that have helped? <laughs> or coffee, extra coffee? <laughs> do you have any thoughts before I jump into building up our positive definition of this? Evelyn. Well, it just always has confused me because if we as humans, like I'm a mom, I'm a mom all the time. Yep. I don't ever, I have different roles as a mom. Yes. And I wear different hats as a mom, but yep. I'm always a mom. So it confuses me why, as simple as that is, and we do deal with it every day, why it, other, like when you take it to who Jesus is, who God is, the Trinitarian view, why that's so... All of a sudden, confusing. Well, I mean, that illustration that you just used is one that's used by modalists saying, well, look, you know, sometimes you, you are very clearly functioning as wife. You and your husband are out having a conversation, you're wife. Sometimes you're with your children and you're instructing your children, you're mom. Uh, you're president of a school board. Sometimes you're in a school board meeting and you're functioning as president of the school board, not wife or mom in that moment. And they say, see, that's just like it is with God. Sometimes he approaches us as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as spirit. He takes modes. But the problem is, that is saying he has creaturely limitations. Right. Like we do. 
Because obviously we can't be all things at once. Uh, we can't be uh, omnipresent. We can't be omniscient. We can't be omnipotent. God doesn't have the limitations that we have. And so, uh, but what they do, like with so many false teachings, is they look at the creaturely existence and apply it to God. And we have to stay away from, from that. Uh, but it's a real temptation. We always want God to be like us, don't we? James. Well, in that particular case, they're taking out the person of the Trinity. They're just having the being manifesting as yes. certain yes. ways rather than different persons. Yes. He's one being, one person, but his person changes depending on right. what he wants to accomplish in that moment. Yeah. It's strange. So instead, of, we don't actually have a Trinity there. Yes. We've got one person acting as three different parts or different play parts. Yes. Yep. Different. Yep. Different so modes. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. All right. Well, let's start building up a positive case. Uh, just to clarify, we're not talking about the constitution of the Godhead. That's what we were just discussing, uh, talking about the Trinity. We're not talking about that in this lesson. And we're not talking about where Christ came from. We've already covered that in the last lesson. He's eternally God, okay? So we're not talking about either one of those things. We're talking about how we describe Christ's nature now. Now that Jesus has come, he's been born, the Word became flesh, how do we talk about this? That's what we're discussing in this lesson. And the very fancy term, as you see on your sheet there, is hypostatic union. And you can jot down that what this means is the union of natures. Okay? Hypostatic union is the union of natures. Hypostatic is a goofy-looking word, but it comes from the Greek, basically meaning nature. Okay? Hypostasis is the Greek word. It just means nature. So we're talking about the union of Christ's natures. And here are some facts, and you can jot these down too before we get to Philippians, uh, if you'd like. Jesus is one person possessing two distinct natures, Humanity and deity. So, from that first statement, we're ruling out this view. Because this view says, no, he's got a blend. He's got one nature. It's a blend. We're also ruling out this view that says the two come together to make one new nature as two different parts. We're ruling that out. Okay? He has two distinct natures, humanity and deity. He truly possesses each nature. So that really knocks out this middle view. He has not only the divine mind and the divine spirit, he has human mind and human spirit because he truly became man. He didn't almost become man. He didn't become man like in the sense of he had a body so everyone thought he was a man, but he really just you know, held back before going 100% human. No, he was 100% human. Okay? And this union of two natures occurred at his conception. He did not possess humanity before the incarnation. So that doesn't get to addressing Nestorianism just yet, but it is just a, something to keep in mind that he was only of one nature before the incarnation. He wasn't human for all eternity. He existed as creator God for all eternity, and at the incarnation is where he added humanity to his person. He didn't have humanity as, a, as an aspect of his person before the incarnation. He had to come into, step into creation, come into time and space to get humanity. Okay. Right? 
The, all these statements are like, huh, let me think about that for two days, and I'll get back to you. All right, and, and you can do that. Just jot it down and meditate on it, and next week we can discuss it more. Give you a headache. Yeah, yeah, I will. Well, let's go to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2 together, such a critical passage. Not the first time we've been here in this class, and it won't be the last. Philippians chapter 2. I was just talking to Steve about this passage this morning. He had heard it on the radio, one of the sermons he was listening to. And he was just remarking on how, you know, Jesus, when he became man, he got like hungry and stuff, like we do. He got tired. He had to become a man to experience those things. And yes, that is absolutely true, isn't it? There's no hunger in heaven. And not only that, Jesus became a drooling baby who had to be held by others. God became a baby and had to get his bottom wiped and the diaper changed. Had to learn his ABCs. He had to learn how to walk. None of that exists in heaven. He had to become man to do that. He had to become as a creature. So let's look at this. Uh, starting in verse 3 uh, to verse... 11. Someone want to read Philippians 2, 3 to 11. Who's got that? Okay. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbly he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Well, that's a majestic passage, isn't it? And you could dwell on that for the rest of your life. I, I could preach every Sunday on that passage. There's so much to see. Well, as we are looking at it today, the main thing that we want to see initially is the theology that's found in here about the person of Christ. Okay. So consider verse 6. Let's zoom into verse 6 and, and highlight, focus on verse 6. And consider what Jesus did and how that affects his person. There are two words that make all the difference within this passage as we consider the uh, theology that we want to get out of it today. The way we define form and the way we define emptied will totally guide our understanding. Hey, you see that in verse 6, he existed in the form of God. How you define that is going to be very, very important. And then in verse 7, that although he existed in that sense, he emptied himself. Now, you can imagine how you define that is going to really guide your theology here, isn't it? There's a uh, bad theology out there called kenosis theology. Now, kenosis isn't a bad word. It's the Greek word that means empty. That's just what that means. But they make a whole doctrine off of that word that ignores the meaning of emptying 
And basically the theology says, when Jesus came to earth, he stopped being God. He emptied himself of his deity. Now that's going to set you on a course to believe something different about the person of Jesus Christ than we believe, isn't it? You're going to end up in a very different place. He emptied himself. Well, that means he stopped being God and he became human. I think a lot of them would say at his resurrection, he got his deity back. But sheesh, that means uh, in between, if that's what you believe, in between there, he's just a guy. Just a guy. Well, they would say like, you know, Elijah, same thing. He worked miracles, though he was just a human. So he, he had a special power of God thro- flowing through him, but in his person, he was just human. Yeah. Okay, so it really makes a difference how you define these words, form and empty. Now let's compare as we tackle form first. You see form in verse 6 where it says, He existed, going to eternity past, He existed in the form of God. Now some might say, well that just means that He was God-like. But not God Himself, but He was just God-like. Well look at verse 7. Verse 7, He took the form of a bondservant. Same word being used. Was He a true servant or was it just a facade? When he took on flesh, did he become a real servant or just like a fake servant? No, oh, yeah, a real servant, right? He took the form of a bond servant. Was he really washing people's feet? Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, does Mark 10.45 mean what it says when it says the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many? Well, yes. So form here doesn't mean like almost like. It means exactly like. He existed in the form of God, and then he took the form of a bondservant. The Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to instruct that in eternity past, Jesus not only existed, but he existed as God himself, just as John 1.1 says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Philippians 2, verse 6, he existed in the form of God. It's saying the same thing. It's saying the same thing in both passages. Okay? So, Um, equality really drives this home when we think about what we learned about the Trinity, how all three are God, all three are God simultaneously, all three are 100% God. Father, Son, and Spirit don't come together to make God, but each one is 100% God. And we looked at that several lessons ago, but that's the idea. Jesus is 100% God. He wasn't just uh, in the form of, in the sense, like a shadowy figure who reflected God as a creature. No, no. He's creator God from all eternity. Okay? But now we have to deal with emptied. Because a lot of people will see that and agree with that. Okay? The vast majority of people will agree with that. Now you've got to get to empty and figure out what that means. How could Jesus actually empty himself and still remain God? So I'll start off by just opening that up to you. How do you want to articulate this? How could he empty himself and remain God? He willingly set aside some of his attributes at certain times. Okay. Yeah, that last phrase is really important, right? At certain times. Um, He set aside his attributes. Do you mind if I open it up for people to critique what you said? Okay, all right. (laughs) What do you think of that? This is tricky, isn't it? You've got to watch what you say and really think through it. Mandy? The Greek says to empty, make empty, vain, or of no effect. So 
it's that he didn't use certain attributes. Okay. All right. So, are you distinguishing that from what Renee said in any any sense here? Like I've said before, uh, quoting someone else, this is like June bugs doing quantum physics, right? Okay. Anybody want to be another June bug here? <laughs> okay. So then, how would you distinguish that from the kenosis heresy that says he emptied himself of his deity? Well, it doesn't make him less deity, but okay. he is still submitting himself to what his father, what the father asked him to do. Okay. So I could, I could be a manager of a business, but be asked to go do a task which isn't managerial, and I could do that without acting like a manager. Mm. Okay, yeah. Well, I think we're right to link submission to this, as I've heard you guys say. Uh, in Philippians 2, as you're still there, hopefully, you see in verse 8, it says he humbled himself by doing what? Becoming obedient. Becoming obedient. Was Jesus obedient to the Father before the incarnation? <laughs> this is actually a really hot debate that's been raging for like five or six years now in... Uh, Theological circles where all the eggheads with doctorates, you know, like to debate this stuff. Did Jesus have eternal submission to the Father? Or did his submission to the Father begin with his incarnation? Those who take the latter view say, well, look, in Philippians 2.8, it says that his humility that began with the incarnation is directly tied to obedience, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Submission to the Father. And I would say that's a pretty compelling view. Now, but there's also this aspect of the Father sends the Son. The Father does send the Son into the world. That's before the incarnation. You've got to wrestle with that. Okay, all right. Well, let's just keep going through this. First, we need to understand the word, like Mandy was reading there, to mean make void, to nullify, or to make of no effect. That word for um, empty. Okay? So... Uh, the word for empty does not mean to pour out and make empty like we would think of a, you know, a jar or something. But it ha carries with it this idea to make void or to nullify, to make of no effect. And second, we have to say, okay, if that's what the word means, what is being nullified? That's the million dollar question. If it means to make of no effect, what is being made of no effect? Mandy. So like when Jesus was on the cross and they were 
scoffing at him and saying, if you're the son of God, bring yourself yeah. down. And he absolutely couldn't have. He had the power that he could have, but he was in submission to the Father's will. Yep, yep, that's true. That's absolutely true, yep. Uh, there's also that, that passage that is, uh, can be a real stumper. About that day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the Son, but the Father only. When Jesus is talking about his return, he says that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. Now what do you do with that? It's like, well, wait a second. You are omniscient God here. And we see his omniscience throughout his ministry. It's not like, uh, you know, it's like, well, that's consistent throughout the Gospels. Jesus never knows more than what any other guy knows. Well, he, yes, he does. He's walking around and says, Jesus, knowing their hearts, said this. Knowing that this was in their hearts, said that. Knowing that Judas would be the one who would betray him, did this, said that. Okay? So you've got this omniscience being exercised, but on that particular point of the day or the hour of the second coming, he says, the son doesn't even know, only the father. Now that's, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one, all right? Well, the emptying, in the emptying, Jesus was nullifying the expression, here's your blank here, the expression of certain divine prerogatives that he had in glory in heaven. Okay? So a real simple way to think about this is going back to what I was just saying earlier about um, Jesus being dependent in his humanity. He was totally dependent on mom and dad to take care of him, wasn't he, as a little baby? It's, even though Jesus existed as 100% God from the moment of his birth, he wasn't changing his own diaper. He wasn't. He wasn't feeding himself. He became not only obedient, but in his humanity, he became dependent on mom and dad to take care of him as a baby in his humanity. Okay, so one way that certain commentators or theologians have explained this emptying is that it was emptying by addition. He added humanity to his person, and in that way... He had to go through things that he would never gone through in heaven. This submission and dependence. Joe. Did Mary know he was Jesus? He was well, yeah, he had the angel visiting Mary, saying, you know, this is the, the one who's going to deliver his people from their sins. There was that sort of prophecy made to those alive at that time about him. But it certainly took time. I mean, how do you wrap your mind around that when you're holding your baby? <laughs> And say, yes, I'm submitting to you as Lord. You know, I've just... I can't imagine yeah. what Mary must have thought when she was changing his life. Yeah. <laughs> or when she never had to correct him. Yeah. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> now, she was a first-time mom. So she didn't have anything to compare it to as he was growing up. But as he had siblings, uh, then she had something to compare it to. Like, wow, I never had to correct Jesus. He never sinned. He never made a mistake. Be like your brother. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Be like your older brother. Come on, James. James. How did he? How did he let her know he was hungry? Yeah, he cried just like every other baby. Yeah, absolutely. His way. I want food. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And this is just a great example of God's ways are higher than our ways, aren't they? Yep, yep. Um, in the different translations for Philippians 2.6, you have in the NIV saying he made himself nothing, uh, talking about this emptying 
stuff. King James, he made himself of no reputation. Philip's translation, he humbled himself. These translations all rightly express the idea of what is happening in the text as communicated by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The emptying is this humility to make himself nothing, to have no reputation. That's giving up what he had in heaven. In his existence eternally as God, he has all things. He has all reputation. He's, of course, perpetually in his divinity. He's owed all honor, praise, and glory. And yet, he came down here to wash feet. That's emptying, isn't it? That's giving some things up. That's nullifying certain prerogatives, the expression of certain prerogatives, where he had all right to, to exercise these divine prerogatives, but in humility chose to wash feet. It's pretty amazing stuff. And that's really the thrust of Philippians 2. Philippians 2 isn't written for us to get our theology right on paper and walk away. If you look at Philippians 2, 3, um, we're given a command as the church. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but have humility of mind like Jesus. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. That's what Paul's doing. He's writing to instruct the church morally. Be humble people. And he merely uses Jesus as an example. Now, we get great theology from that, but let's not lose sight of the big picture here, okay? As MacArthur and Mayhew explain, this was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. If he actually surrendered or gave up his divine attributes, then it might suggest that he ceased to be God. But that would result in something at odds without how the Bible identifies him as being fully and truly God. And so it's not that he ceased to be omnipotent. However, in his humanity, certain attributes were veiled. I've talked about in this class before how Jesus wasn't walking around glowing in unapproachable light, was he? Now, as God, he dwells in unapproachable light, but he veiled his glory with humanity. And there were certain expressions of the divine attributes that were given up. Certain expressions of the attributes were given up in humility. The emptying was necessary for him to become a man. Flesh and blood do not exist in the realm of heaven, so he had to leave celestial glory and take on flesh and blood, to take on carnality. And it's also important to note that this humanity remains perpetually. That's something I think that we easily forget. Uh, it can somehow creep into our minds that, well, Jesus was man for that time, and now he's back to just being God. No, he still has two natures. And we'll see the importance of that as we study his function as priest for today. He remains with the human nature and his divine nature. He's never going to give up that human nature. When he rose from the grave, he rose with a human nature that could be felt and touched. And he ascended into heaven with that body. He maintains his humanity in addition to his deity. Paul is making an incredible theological statement in this passage. Yahweh, the Old Testament name for God, has become a slave to the point of death. But we should not lose sight of the big picture, which is that moral point. As John Frame points out, the nature of the kenosis, the emptying of Philippians 2.7, can be understood perfectly well as the self-humbling of God's servant. That is, of course, Paul's point in the larger context. It's an ethical point, not a metaphysical one. Paul is telling them to behave differently. 
So it's important that we recognize that in the passage too. Even though we get great theology out of it, if you get great theology and then you're prideful about it, you've missed the whole point of Philippians 2. Philippians 2 isn't just that you get that Jesus is God and he added humanity and that's amazing and now you go treat your brother like a sack of crud. No, but by realizing that theology, it affects your life, it affects your heart, it affects your personality, it affects your behavior. And you imitate your Savior by acting in humility among your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's Paul's big point. Well, we're going to stop there before we get into uh, Hebrews 2. We'll pick up with Hebrews 2 next week. But do you have any uh, thoughts or questions? Expression. Expression of certain divine privileges. Anybody else need some? Yes, Lizzie. Yeah, that's a great question, and there are different ways to approach explaining that, and at the end of the day, I think we all have to admit, we're probably not going to land on a satisfactory answer. So, one answer is, in his unglorified humanity, okay, so he was in the, uh, this is before the resurrection, before he had the glorified body that he has now, that Jesus, in that humanity, did not know the day or the hour, and so when he said that, he was speaking from his unglorified humanity. Or just from this human perspective. Okay. That's one way of saying that. Um, another way of saying it is that in the whole person, he had just given that expression of his omniscience up. He knew other things that reflected his omniscience. But that particular fact of the future, he chose to give up for that time. But basically, anywhere you land on why he said that, I think we all do have to come back around to... Now he does, okay? Now as Jesus has been glorified and he's at the right hand of the Father and the majesty on high, yeah, he, he knows the day and the hour. I think that would be right. What was the first thing? Uh, two words that make all the difference. Form is the first one. Form and emptied. Emptied. Yep. Other thoughts or questions? interesting to think of Jesus in human form as God being confined to space and time. Yet he knows what's going to happen and he knows the thoughts of men and he knows the next actions that are coming. Yeah. And just acting appropriately through it all and waiting for those things to happen so that he can do what he has to do. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Great humility. That's it. So if we, do, if we go back to this at, that I talked about at the beginning, the creator-creature divide, can a creature ever graduate to creator? No. Can, a creature, or cre- can the creator ever take on a creaturely existence? And of course the answer is yes, in the person of Jesus, and it's not to the negation of this. He doesn't cross out or give up his status as creator when he becomes creature. He adds it to the nature of, of deity. He adds humanity. He doesn't add humanity to cancel that out. He adds humanity to it, and the two natures exist simultaneously. And he is unique in that. The Father didn't do that, and the Spirit didn't do that. Only the Son. He took on the nature of the creature, but would we still say that he was created in that sense? Well, um, he was conceived. 
like everyone else has been conceived. Well, not like everyone has been conceived. But uh, he didn't have an earthly father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yes. Um, but he was conceived. And so um, his humanity is true humanity added to his deity. Uh, now, yeah, his conception was different. His birth is different. He's the only one who's been born of a virgin. And so those aspects are different. But it is a true humanity. So as long as we're not diminishing the, the reality of the humanity, you know, you can phrase that however you'd like. Yeah, I think for myself, anyway, I'm trying to do the, put the distinction in there because he was never, he was God. He wasn't created. Yep, never. But he still took on that humanity. That had a starting point. creation form. His humanity had a starting point. Right. But that's not his starting point. Correct. It's that nature starting right. point. Right. And that's where I'm distinct. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's it. Jesus, as the Son of God, never had a starting point. Son of God is eternal. He's the eternal Son. His humanity did have a starting point. So that, that's why you've got to keep the natures distinct because you deal with someone like uh, an open theist who says God is not omniscient. God does not know the future, and God does change. They'll point to the incarnation and say, see, Jesus changed. But we say, no, this would, this would be Jesus changing, that he added humanity and all got blended together, and now he's a new person. We're saying, no, the deity of Christ was not affected by the humanity. They're separate. They're full, 100%, but they're separate. So his deity has never changed. But he added humanity. We have to be real careful about how we phrase those things. Lizzie, did you have a thought? Does Jesus have, or have the same body He didn't have a body before he was born. Just like the Father is spirit, Jesus has existed from all eternity as spirit. He took on a body only in the incarnation. Yep. Yep. His resurrected body he maintains perpetually. Yep. Good. Yeah. John four twenty four. God is spirit. Okay. Well, let's pray and uh, we'll take all this information into the next part of our worship this morning. Father, thank you so much for these amazing truths you revealed to us, we ask that we would come to you as little children with childlike faith, that we would grab hold to every word you've said. And even though we don't make sense of all these things in the way that we might like to sometimes, that we would just trust you at your word and that we'd maintain what you've said. Help us to understand more and more about who you are and how we can think rightly about you, that we would be uh, those who uphold the truth in that way. And above all, God, we ask that as we take hold of these truths, that they would affect our lives and that our behavior would be affected, that we would act in humility as we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through this life by the power of your spirit. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.